Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Our guest today is Allison Devlin, a postdoctoral research associate with Panthera and its Jaguar program. Panthera is the only organization in the world that is devoted exclusively to the conservation of the world's 40 wildcat species and their ecosystems. One of Panthera's signature efforts is its work throughout Central and South America to protect the so-called Jaguar Corridor, mostly connected tracts of land allowing jaguars to move across habitats. I had the pleasure of traveling with the Panthera team to see firsthand their work in the Pantanal region of Brazil, an area we will explore today. Allison will provide much more detail, but jaguars are a so-called near-threatened species. Jaguars face many risks throughout their habitat, not just in the Pantanal. We will discuss both the risks they face and the solutions that Allison and others are working on to protect the jaguars and their habitats, not just today, but far into the future. Allison, welcome to the Voices of Nature podcast. We are really excited to have you on and can't wait to talk about the jaguars, the Pantanal, and all the other exciting adventures that you've been on. Great. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be joining you in the audience to talk everything about jaguars. So as we start, why don't you take us to really where you started? Um, you know, you've said that you've been working with animals since you were a teenager. And so tell us what inspired you to do that and what led you to your current role in Panthera? Sure. Um, so the, I guess, abridged version, um, I grew up loving to watch documentaries about cheetahs and lions and Every time I had a school project in elementary school through high school, I would do them on a different wild cat species. And I grew up about an hour north of New York City, so close enough to the Bronx Zoo that we were able to visit quite often. And of course, with the history with Wildlife Conservation Society and the wildcat researchers who had been based there as I was growing up, was just considered like the wild conservation research. So as a teenager, I got into a teen internship program at the Bronx Zoo. And over summers, I then worked at the children's zoo. I did animal shows. And during that time, I was in high school and there were public presentations that some of the wildcat researchers would give either to zoo staff and volunteers or even to the public. And I was talking with some of the researchers that were based there, just asking advice about how to basically do what they do. And they gave me the advice for undergrad just to get a hard science background. Um, so I went to undergrad for animal science. And during that first semester, I, of course, did a report on jaguars. And I, through a series of interactions after having that report done, saw that the one of the founders of Panthera, Alan Rabinowitz, was doing a public presentation at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. So I took off for that presentation. Um, it was my first semester in undergrad, and my mom came with me. <laughs> and um, I went up and introduced myself and talked with him about Jaguars. And fortunately, um, had a really interesting conversation just about research and being able to meet with other individuals that were doing wildcat research. And from there, I was able to connect with the team that was working in Belize. Fortunately, they did need some 
assistance in the field. And I was able to help on that project. That was the PhD project for Dr. Rebecca Foster and Dr. Bart Harmson. Um, they now run the Panthera Belize program, but at the time they were completing their PhDs. So I went to Belize um, in Coxcomb Basin Wildlife Sanctuary for a couple of summers. From there, I developed a master's project. I went on to a master's program and it was in that master's research. I studied the different uh, comparing wild jaguars to captive jaguars for stress hormones and reproductive sex hormones. And to collect wild jaguar scats, I had to train as a scat detection dog handler because we were collecting wild jaguar scats. I was able to expand the project to study the genetics of the wild jaguars in uh, Belize. And that was the conclusion of my master's. My One of my main mentors there, uh, Dr. Luke Hunter, inspired me to just keep asking big questions. And that's how I started developing the PhD project. And kind of through a winding series of events, um, Panthera had been founded during that time. And I knew I wanted to track jaguar movement. And it was recommended to start looking at Pontanol since Panthera had established the research base at the two ranches in the middle of the Pontanol, um, Fazenda Salvento and Fazenda Joffrey Value. So I developed the PhD proposal for that. Fortunately, collaborators in Brazil were very supportive, very welcoming. Um, they've been some excellent collaborators from the government agencies to the NGOs, to the local community, and was able to work with those researchers, communities, collaborators, and it's been a wild ride since it's been, um, I think, more than I could have hoped for. And fortunately, we are still continuing with the research as I continue on into my postdoctoral researcher position. So I have to admit, Allison, you, uh, you ticked off a very important skill that may make you even more more elite than all of your advanced degrees uh, would otherwise indicate. You said you were a, a scat detection dog handler, which probably puts you in the top 1% of the top 1% of something. <laughs> <laughs> tell us what that means and tell us why actually that skill is so very important to understanding, in this case, the jaguar, but also the, the ecosystem in which the jaguar inhabits. Sure, thank you. <laughs> So this is about 10 years ago, um, so I would need to freshen my skill set up, but I did get certified as a scat detection dog handler um, for my master's research. There are other researchers that focus their PhD on handling a scat detection dog and did larger scale studies. Um, but for the scat dog work, it's similar to a drug sniffing dog or a bomb sniffing dog, but they're trained instead to find wildlife scat samples. And you can train a dog that's very driven for a certain reward. So some of these connection that they have is more focused on getting that tennis ball. They want that kind of reward, that very high drive to get that tennis ball. And you can train the animal to find a scent. And once they key into that scent, you then reward them with the thing that they want the most, that tennis ball. Um, so for this scat detection dog work, I trained with an, a group called Pack Leader Dog Training. They're based out in Washington state. And they 
match you to the dog that works well with you as the handler in training. And you can then bring samples of the wildlife species that you want the dog to start training on. And through positive reinforcement, they start learning that I want to find that scent because that means I get my tennis ball. Um, and you have to design your transect when you're in the field for what the dog is able to cover. And we were able to find many jaguar scats on trails and doing off-trail transects. And some of the samples humans would never have even seen, but the dog, because of their heightened sense of smell, is able to find these samples that we would not have recovered. And at the end of my two-month survey with the dog, it was about three months at the end of it all, we found about 99 wild scats. And, and from- scats, Allison, are yep. for the non-scientists of us, scat is the feces from the jaguars, correct? Correct. Yep. Scats are the, uh, I guess, kinder term. For <laughs> the more the scientific yeah. term. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, from the scat or fecal samples, you can tell a lot about an animal. Um, for the predator, if you imagine the sample passing through on the outside of the scat, you'll have the cells from the animal that produced the scat sample. And on the inside, you'll have the cells of what they consumed. So if you want to do a genetic analysis on the animal that produced the scat, you can collect the samples. You have to store them in a certain way until you get back to the lab. And at the lab, you scrape the outside of the prepared sample, and you can collect those epithelial cells that shed as it passes through the animal. If you want to start looking at prey, you can open up the scat sample and you'll find hairs, you'll find bits of bone, and then you can also take samples from the interior part of the scat and you do genetic analyses on what the meat was that the predator had consumed. And why is that important? I mean, it's there have to be more enjoyable things to do with <laughs> <your> time, <laughs> but it is, it's incredibly important to your research and how your research layers up to the broader understanding of, of the habitats in which the jaguars uh, inhabit. Sure, absolutely. There are some brilliant geneticists that have been working on wildlife, especially wildcats and in particular jaguars. And I think one of the biggest lessons that was learned from just genetic analyses is that jaguars are a single species throughout their entire range. And that's what inspired people with Jaguar research, including Alan Rabinowitz and many other teams, um, was the study by geneticist, um, Brazilian geneticist, Dr. Eduardo Isaric, and he and his team published that it's a single species. And that really transformed the approach for jaguar conservation to be this range-wide connection, because then you want to make sure all these populations stay connected. Because jaguars are so elusive, it's hard to catch individuals and take samples directly from them. And one of the most advanced ways to study genetics, we've really pursued this uh, use of scat samples because it's considered non-invasive. You collect it after the animal has deposited it. You don't need to capture the animal. And you can collect those scat samples directly from the environment and then do identification to the species level. You can tell if it's a male or female with the genetic analyses. You can, in good samples, if they're high quality enough, 
You can even tell the individual ID. And once you get a profile for the population, you can start looking at relatedness, the parentage of the individual. If you have records from longer term data, you can compare the relatedness between populations and the genetic diversity. And that gives you a snapshot of the overall genetic health of the population. And if you have enough samples that are high quality enough, you can then tell if populations are starting to become fragmented, if you're seeing evidence of what we call genetic drift or other processes that might indicate that a population is becoming isolated from the rest of the bigger population, the metapopulation of jaguars. Now you, you've touched a little bit on the jaguar um, and, and what makes it unique. You and I are both, as we've been talking, or you and I are both uh, jaguar aficionados. Um, mm-hmm. What what makes the jaguar so special and so just uh, just a beautiful creature that mm-hmm. is is so important, not just to the the ecosystems, but frankly to the culture of so much of Latin and South America. Sure, that's a great question. Um, I think as we had discussed, and um, absolutely, they're very important to the ecosystem. We consider them a keystone species. Uh, they indicate the overall health of the ecosystem because you need prey, you need good habitat um, for jaguar to persist. But they also have a really important place in human culture with prehistory, what we consider um, a lot of indigenous cultures through much of their history worship jaguars, not only as gods, but messengers to gods, as warriors, as icon. And they've worship the jaguar because they considered it as a being that would move between this world and the spirit world. They would accompany shamans. And so very significant because they're so elusive and shy, they're considered very mysterious and they inhabit this interesting, I guess, space between the living world and the other world, other side of um, the spirit world for religious ceremonies. And even for cultures through time, they've been revered for their power, their grace. Obviously, they are very charismatic. And even today, they capture the attention of people, whether for good or for uh, negative perceptions. But it's very much an animal that people connect to. And I think that provides a common point, a focal point for bringing people together, whether it's appreciating the beauty and power and grace of the jaguar, if it's focusing on their role in the ecosystem, or even if it's for people who have to live with predators every single day and they encounter these direct losses. And that's something that drives a bit of the conflict work that we've been working in with communities is trying to help support coexistence and mitigating that conflict with predators. Because if people are living in very remote areas and they're relying on livestock and a jaguar comes along and kills and eats one of their cattle, that's taking away from the family's livelihood. And it's trying to understand that push and pull need to maintain predators, the carnivores in the landscape and how humans can pursue this mitigation and ultimate goal of coexist with the wildlife in the area. 
in a couple of questions, I want to get back to that point of finding a balance between these tensions. But before we do that, maybe let's set the, the context a little bit, because I think mm-hmm. that then helps understand both the, the importance of, but also the challenges too, finding that balance. So you and I both been to the, the Pantanal region in, in Western Brazil, which is this amazing area that I think is, you know, its beauty is often overshadowed by the beauty of the Amazon. It is certainly only part of the Jaguar corridor that you alluded to that stretches all the way from what, Argentina through to, to Mexico. Mm-hmm. But the, the Pantanal is a really, really important ecosystem for a lot of reasons. So first take us into that, and then let's come back to the topics you raised about finding that balance between you know, human development and conservation. Sure. So with part of the Jaguar Corridor, all of our research is conducted under that umbrella of the Jaguar Corridor Initiative. As we talked about, the jaguar is a single species from Mexico through Argentina, and that's what helped spearhead this agenda, this goal to connect all the remaining populations of jaguars throughout their range. So part of the Jaguar Corridor Initiative is that jaguar experts identified over 80 population units, and we call them jaguar conservation units, or JCUs. And that means there are at least 50 breeding individuals within that core population. And in order to maintain connectivity, we need a network of corridors of intact habitat or habitat that jaguars can move through to maintain that physical and genetic connectivity. One of the key JCUs and considered one of the last strongholds for jaguars is the Pontanal JCU. So the Pontanal is a giant wetland in the middle of the South American continent. It's located right below the Amazon, and it's mainly located in Brazil. It covers over 140,000 kilometers squared, and most of it is dedicated to cattle ranching. Um, 80% of it is to higher intensity cattle ranching, and less than 5% of the Pantanal is in protected areas. So it's really a need to work not only in protected areas, but in those landscapes, we call them working landscapes or multi-use landscapes, where humans are also present. And there's still enough intact habitat that wildlife, including jaguars and their prey, can persist. So because with the jaguar corridor, a lot of the threats come from habitat loss. Now we see jaguars have about 50% of their historic range intact. So identifying these population strongholds, these JCUs, including the Pantanal, has become very important to being proactive, making sure that those populations do not get fragmented. And because of that, we're able to really dig into unique systems like the Pantanal to figure out different ways that we can help conflict and coexistence with jaguars um, to improve the situation for jaguars and their communities. And how is, how is Panthera helping to strike that balance that you talked about in terms of the the jaguars, what they need to live, to breed, to thrive, as well as then what humans need to, Mm -hmm. to live and to thrive? Great question. For jaguars, we consider them as pretty resilient. They occur in a wide variety of habitat. You can 
find videos online of jaguars in Costa Rica, for example, eating sea turtles on a beach. Um, they range in intact rainforest through the Amazon, through dry forest. In Brazil, there is a network of dry forest habitat um, called the Sahadu, even some more harsh regions like the Kachinga. And in the Pantanal, this giant wetland, um, they have a very dynamic ecosystem that they have to live in and survive. And because they're so resilient, they can adapt to a regime of flooding where you get up to three meters of floodwaters inundating the area. And then during the dry season, you can have some natural fires. And in the case of um, for any listeners that may have been following some of those headlines from uh, late last year, unfortunately, you do get some very severe and intense fire events that burn a whole lot more habitat than what you would naturally see during a fire system. So jaguars have to adapt to a lot of different conditions. Um, they eat over 80 different species. So they're an opportunistic but generalist predator. They're an ambush predator, which means they do need a good amount of intact habitat so that they can sneak up on their prey. And they need to be able to catch them in a pretty quick pursuit. They're built more for the ambush predation rather than for speed. So you won't see them running at very high speeds like a cheetah. And if they can get as close as possible to a prey animal, um, that's their preferred method. Some videos that you may have seen online or like we had been talking about before, just directly being in the Pantanal and getting to witness this firsthand, jaguars will get very close to a capybara or a caiman, a relative of the alligator or crocodile, and they'll leap from the riverbank onto the back of their prey. And they're pretty unique in how they kill their prey. They do a single bite through the skull. And that is, I think, testament to how strong their jaws are. And they can just take the animal off into thick underbrush and consume their prey there. If they don't have that kind of cover, um, they aren't as efficient as hunters. Uh, so absolutely, they need a healthy prey base and they need a good amount of cover um, in order to be the predator, the kind of predator that they are. That was a, a wonderful tutorial of the jaguar. Thank you for that. But they, they play an important role in, yeah. in helping achieve the, the balance in these ecosystems. They actually help farmers, right? They help call the cattle, as you had um, mentioned before. And so, again, there's this important goal of finding a balance between protecting them and their habitat, as well as allowing for, shall we just say, socioeconomic development of the people that live, in this case, in the Pantanal. And, mm -hmm. you know, doing away with the jaguars, driving them to extinction actually throws everything off that has massive consequences, even for the people that live there. Is that a correct assumption on my part? So for jaguars, they are a very important part of the ecosystem. They, in any place that they live, are an indicator of the health of that ecosystem. If you don't have sufficient prey and you don't have sufficient habitat, um, the jaguar cannot survive. The jaguar will not persist. And certainly as a population, they wouldn't be able to persist for very much longer. So an indicator of the health of the ecosystem is to see the jaguar. And 
part of their role is to also help control disease. And for a predator, they help to keep down the populations of wild prey. You won't see an overabundance of wild prey in a healthy ecosystem. And with having intact habitat, a lot of the vectors of disease, uh, like rodents, they like the edge habitats where you get a lot more human activity by having intact habitat and by having top predators that helps to control this whole chain within the ecosystem to suppress the prevalence of zoonotic diseases that could jump from wildlife to humans. So jaguars definitely have many different roles to the ecosystem. Part of the conflict is that jaguars will attack livestock. Most cases we see are where you have human activity and there aren't enough wild prey around and jaguars will then need to start hunting livestock in order to survive. What we see in certain ecosystems, like in the Pantanal, um, from prior research is that jaguars will take less than 2% of a total herd in a single year. So it's not as much depredation as it um, might be reported to be. There is some depredation. And part of what we tell stakeholders and collaborators is that we can never make the predation 0%. We can reduce it and minimize it and mitigate it as much as possible. But if there is any nuance, any change in management, or um, it will never be 0%. And that just has to be an accepted part of living with carnivores. If you do have an excellent system that works, we do have some ranchers that have reported zero predation, and that's excellent. And I think that does a lot for people to see it is possible to coexist, but that's, I think, something we should absolutely strive for. So for jaguars taking livestock, that's the main driver of conflict. And some ranchers, as we had talked about just before, that's their livelihood. That's how they're um, sustaining their, themselves, their families. And to lose a cow, especially if it's a small family farm, is a really big financial hit. And so there's retaliation against jaguars, um, including direct killing, um, just to either prevent predation or um, sometimes the ranchers don't want to see any predators on their property. I had one encounter with a community member who lived in a very remote area with his wife and young children, and they had about two dozen chickens. And in a single night, a jaguar broke into the enclosure, killed most of the chickens, and killed their family dog. And this rancher said he was pretty much destitute because of this. And in a single night, he said the jaguar took away almost everything. And of course, they were concerned for the safety of their family. Fortunately, the team that we were working with was there and um, they were able to come back to the area, help him get more chickens and build a jaguar-proof enclosure for the chickens so that they wouldn't have this kind of encounter again. And it's been a consistent interaction since then. But for a lot of people, that's the story is where they're in these remote areas and um, you kind of have to either take care of things on your own or that's where our role comes in is to try to help provide these practical 
economic um, methods for helping to mitigate conflict. And we have a wide range of different tools that we use, um, whether it's using a night corral, um, including guard breeds of defensive breeds of cattle with the herd that um, ranchers are using. So they will naturally defend against jaguars. Um, calving pens and electric fences, um, a wide variety of tools that might work based on the location where you are. And Pontanol has been, I think, a really important site where we've been able to work with several ranchers and several ranches on these different techniques and evaluating what works and what doesn't and what suite of tools we can use from our toolkit for helping to mitigate conflict. So to put you on the spot, mm-hmm. yes or no, and I, I like your rationale for your yes or no answer. Okay. Do you believe that humans and animals in places like the Pantanal can uh, coexist to the mutual benefit? Yes, I think it's a process, absolutely a process. And as we tell our collaborators, the conflict will never be zero there will always be some process through which we have to address that conflict. But part of the system that we're working with has been helping to shape the local economy. So offsetting losses of cattle for having predators around. And part of that shift has been to include ecotourism and the income generated from ecotourism has also helped to bring in additional infrastructure to some of the communities, including now several of the communities have solar powered internet. Um, The state has run in a line for an electric grid. Part of our work has also been in providing people that agree to be a Jaguar friendly ranch or a wildlife friendly ranch, meaning they won't persecute Jaguars, they won't persecute native wildlife, and they'll adopt some of these anti-predation techniques. Um, Part of that agreement is that we have a school for children. It's a free school with a state-approved teacher. They get a full curriculum. And most of the ranchers live in such remote areas that there aren't schools available. And part of the, up until recent years, when we established a school, families would need to separate. So the children would have to go to the cities, either with the mother or stay with family members and go to school in the cities while the father or the um, parents would stay behind to work in the ranches. And because we now have a school established, the families can stay together. Um, The school teacher at our research base in um, the Northern Pontanal in Joffrey region, is excellent. Um, Sue Ellen Lechi is a state certified school teacher. She has also supplemented the curriculum to include a lot of information about native wildlife. Our ranch biologist will go in and talk about jaguar research. Um, The students get to interact with researchers that come in from federal universities. And Sue Ellen also on her own established night classes for teaching the adults in the area. Again, because there's been a lot of remote ranches and limited access to school, some of the adults 
needed to still learn how to read and write. And Sue Elling um, to, did night classes to teach reading and writing. Um, and I think that's really helped to improve the lives for the um, tour guides and the ranchers that are in the area. Another excellent initiative with the Jaguar Friendly Ranch is using our base as a sort of community center where now we have um, medical visits from um, the state or from the federal government visiting and people can have a traveling dentist visit. They can get health care, basic checkups. And I think that's done a lot to directly improve the health of the overall community. So it's been a really interesting dynamic seeing this change to the local economy and to the local community by having many different people start having this vision for keeping predators around and the kinds of benefits that having a jaguar in the area can bring. You touch on something very important that I want you to, to expand on a bit, which is there's a lot of roles that people can play in just conserving or protecting nature, however you want to look at it. Not everyone needs to be a, a highly trained scientist like you and your colleagues at Panthera. You can be an educator. You can be a communicator. There's a lot of things that any one of us can do without necessarily having to travel to the, the Pantanal in this case, Sumatra or mm -hmm. you know South Africa. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure thing. Um, and I think it's excellent to have this kind of conversation. I know many people, if they're not able to travel to a site, there are campaigns where you can send in donations and those donations absolutely help teams on the ground. With Panthera, all those donations go directly to the field. And I think that's one of the most important parts of what we do is to really have that presence on the ground that's guided by the latest science, the best science that we have available. And for other people who might want to be take a more active role, if you do have that time and um, interest, I think um, a lot of the more direct interactions have been in amplifying the message um, over whether it's within your family circle, friend circle. Um, I know a lot of groups have said, sharing stories on social media and having these productive conversations and these good discussions has been a really good use of social media. Um, if you're interested in being more active with maybe a skill set that you have to bring to the table, um, each person has their own unique abilities and you can use those abilities for something like conservation, um, whether you're an artist and you want to just help profile the species that you're passionate about and sharing your art with the world in whatever way you think is most effective. If you're a storyteller and you like to share stories, being able to talk about that and have a compelling story that captures people's attention and imagination. Um, if you have mathematical abilities, there are projects that will absolutely benefit from you being able to adapt your skill set and bring that to the table. We even have 
people in quantitative ecology that have a background with coding with computers. And that's becoming a really important part in conservation, um, being able to analyze big data sets. And not many people know about that. And I think one of the more interactive products that we've worked with is uh, hosted on this platform called Zooniverse. And it's a Panthera's camera catalog where we have camera trap photos and it's available for people to volunteer their time and help sort through camera trap photos from our different survey sites throughout the world. And you can help classify and identify what species are in each photo with our camera trap surveys, we come away with thousands, sometimes millions of photographs, and it's a lot to process. So every bit helps. And even looking at that platform, there are many other projects that have similar ways for people to interact. So if you have a free hour in the day or something, that's also a fun way to contribute to a project that you're interested in. But yeah, there are many different ways. And I think, um, just finding what your skill set is, what your passion is, and being able to bring that to the table has been probably the most impactful for conservation, for wildlife, and for helping to make a positive change. That's such a, a wonderful and uplifting way to, to start winding down this conversation. So I want to ask you one last question. It's the same question I ask everyone who appears on this podcast, which is, despite the the ravages of climate change, all the struggles we've had with COVID-19, with the, as you touched on that, you know, the destruction of so much of the Pantanal because of the wildfires, there's still reason to be hopeful. I mean, there's still mm-hmm. reasons why you get out of bed every morning to, to work, to better understand uh, animals like the jaguar and so many others. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why are you hopeful for a better future? Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. For me, I think especially working with jaguars, they're a magnificent animal, very inspiring and seeing just how resilient they are. They range over such a wide variety of habitat. They can persist in human dominated landscapes. They eat over 80 different species. And knowing that if we give them the space and the habitat and the prey that they need, they will survive. I think that's been a really important key to all of this work is knowing that if we can find a way to coexist, um, mitigate that conflict, there the wildlife will persist. And for me, I think being able to work with so many brilliant people, passionate people, from many different backgrounds and walks of life has been incredibly inspiring. And part of the beauty of the Corridor Initiative is that we can work with many different range countries because the Jaguar does range so widely. We have to work in a transboundary framework and make sure that we're collaborating with people from on the ground level to the local regional national and international levels. And uniting people with that vision, I think, has been one of the most invigorating parts of this work and seeing just how passionate people are and however they get inspired by the work um, just brings a new perspective to what we're aiming to do as well. Yeah, for me, it's absolutely been challenging um, as everyone has been 
working through their own challenges with what we faced over this past year. But there have been some very inspiring moments. And, you know, just as resilient as a Jaguar is, we as humans are also very resilient. And I think it's a really inspiring way to work together toward that goal of making sure that we keep predators around for not only our generation, but for future generations too. That is truly inspiring, Allison. Thank you so much for those really heartfelt uh, words that I think we can all take to heart. And thank you so much for being part of the Voices of Nature podcast. This has been a wonderful learning experience. And um, we really hope to hear more from you in, in future episodes so you can continue sharing all your, your great insights with us. Well, thank you so much. And I think this has been an excellent conversation. And as one of our founders has said, we in this field get to be a voice for the voiceless. So I'm very happy to talk with you and your audience and looking forward to sharing more. Thank you, Allison. Take care. You too. Thank you. Hey!